sweet land of liberty, our founding fathers not only pledged, but gave their lives, their fortunes, and their sacred honor to obtain our God-given liberty. Now it's our turn. Liberty can only thrive if it's alive in the hearts of a freedom-loving people. I'm Dan Matthews, and I'm pleased to welcome you to Freedom's Ring. Here's our host and constitutional lawyer and minister, Alan Reinach. Welcome back to Freedom's Ring, my friends. So one of the big problems when Americans today and the Supreme Court is discussing the First Amendment's prohibition on the establishment of religion is that we really are so far removed from what that term meant in colonial America when our founding fathers were drafting the Constitution and the Bill of Rights. And the court has really completely reversed itself and upset the historical apple cart, as it were, in just using and abusing the history because Americans are generally ignorant of it. So what we're going to do today, I've asked my friend and colleague, Lee Johnson, who's a professional historian and who did his PhD dissertation on aspects of the history of church and state and colonial America to help us straighten out and talk about, well, what did establishment really mean? What did it mean to disestablish, to eliminate religious establishments and to, to prohibit them in the constitutional era? So, Lee, welcome to Freedom's Ring. Thank you for asking me, Alan. So, first off, the term, you know, I mean, I remember as a kid, you know, playing with these big words, anti-disestablishmentarianism, right? And you had from Mary Poppins, supercalifragilistic expialidocious. But the first one had to do with the disestablishment of churches in colonial America. What was meant by the establishment of churches. And what was it that the First Amendment's Establishment Clause was addressing? So um, I think there needs to be a distinction between an established religion within the European context and an established religion within the American context at the time of the colonial period and the revolutionary period. In the European context, an established religion most often meant special privileges for individual religious denominations. For instance, the Church of England. Church of England, uh, because of its close connection with the government of England, United Kingdom, the king or queen, was able to have special privileges, that is, tax finance, support for a clergy. Um, in many cases, it would punish heresy. It recognized only licensed Anglican ministers. In many cases, also, only Anglicans would be able to go to universities or colleges. Special privileges, in other words, they would work hand in glove with individual specific denominations. Um, the closest thing to that type of a pattern that existed in colonial America was in Virginia. And uh, that was pretty much blown away in the 1780s through the efforts of uh, Madison and Jefferson. More common during the revolutionary period was another pattern of established religion. And at the core of this was an effort on the part of governments. And there, by the time of the American Revolution, there were still six or seven established religions within states. And at the core of this was the ability of the legislature to raise funding for all kinds of different religious organizations. So it was, it was a, like a non-preferential type of establishment. I don't think that either one of these was out of the mind of people who were aware. These people had, the colonists had come from Europe after all, 
So they were aware of abuses that had happened in earlier times. As a matter of fact, during the revolutionary period in the 1760s, there was a great fear that Anglican bishops would be established within the American colonies. And this was something that concerned Anglicans as well as there's Congregationalists, all kinds of different religious organizations. They were aware of this. Within the context of the American Revolution and the revolutionaries and the founders, the people who wrote the Constitution, the prevailing notion of an establishment was an establishment that used the strong of government to raise funding and support multiple religious organizations. Well, and, you know, it's interesting, the thesis that I have advanced with other guests and scholars, the Supreme Court, when it first began to take seriously how to interpret the First Amendment's prohibition on religious establishments, beginning in 1947 and on up until about 2000, the general framework was to say, well, you know, the First Amendment prohibits government funding of religion. But where are their exceptions? You know, where are their carve-outs? You know, what is the extent of this prohibition? And so if it was things like, you know, police protection or fire department services or bus transportation was the first case, you know, for kids to go to parochial school, it was always, what are the exceptions? Uh, but the court has really reversed itself and now regards that restrictions on government funding of religion somehow are discriminatory against religion and violates the free exercise clause and really obliterates any notion of establishment. And, you know, the irony here, or perhaps the insult, if you will, is that the Supreme Court is doing this invoking, quote, history and tradition. Uh, but in my view, and I think yours as well, they're really running roughshod over that history and tradition. Is that a fair assessment in your view? When I look at the wording of the First Amendment, what I see in connection with the Establishment Clause is that Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion. It doesn't say you can carve out specific areas. It doesn't give permission. It doesn't deny. It says you're not supposed to, Congress cannot even approach the issue of an established religion. So when I connect the First Amendment with the Constitution as it was originally written and understood, the national government at that time was perceived to be like a machine. It was something that would go on its own. It was secular in nature. So I see religion as being something that's that the First Amendment and the original reading of the Constitution is supposed to stay away of entirely, neither advance nor impede it. Well, your point is well taken. I think it's Justice Clarence Thomas who has argued how the First Amendment was not originally intended to apply to the states, and, and he thinks that states should be free to establish religion. But the reality, of course, is that the states themselves also disestablished religion. But when your point is that when you look at the Constitution itself before the Bill of Rights, the understanding was that the federal government was a government of limited delegated powers, and it was not delegated any power or authority over religion to advance it, to restrict it, to set up a church, to prefer any religion or belief system at all. Religion was simply completely separate from the work of government. Is that a fair statement? Yes, it is. Yes, I would agree with you. Yes. So the Establishment Clause, by specifying that government 
is not, you know, to establish religion. It didn't constitute any sort of grant of power to a government that was already limited in its power, right? I think you defy logic if you see that the First Amendment is something that expands a power that originally didn't exist with the Constitution <laughs> itself. Um, and when you look at, at the adoption, um, why the Bill of Rights came into existence, I think you need to have at least a superficial understanding of, of the history that surrounded it was the U.S. Constitution was brought into existence as a replacement for the Articles of Confederation, which, which set up a very weak form of government. So when you have founding fathers like Washington and Madison and others getting together and Hamilton, and they're setting up something as a stronger central government, they want to make sure, they want to assure people that this is a limited government. It's something that will not infringe on their state rights. And so over and over within the Constitutional Convention itself, it's raised that for the issue of religion comes up. Well, there's no need, according to the founders in the Constitution, to come up with any greater assurances because the Constitution itself doesn't allow the national government to go into the issue of religion. The catch comes that when the Constitution, when ratification comes along, you need to win over the, the opposition, that is, the anti-federalist. And so basically what the anti-federalists say is, look at this Constitution, it has all these features in it to make a strong government. We want limitations. They knew about bills of rights not only from the English heritage, but also in connection with their own state governments. And so basically Madison and others said, okay, you don't need them, but we'll go ahead and we'll propose uh, the first 10 amendments. Actually, there were more amendments that were proposed, but only 10 of them were adopted. And so it was actually kind of shrug your shoulders. There's no need for it. We'll go ahead and do it anyway. But it doesn't expand the power of the federal government. If anything, it reaffirms limitations on the federal government. So where we started this discussion, you pointed out that the most basic general types of establishments all involved government funding of religion in one way or another. And so my question is, why were Americans agreed during colonial America? Why were they agreed that that was a bad idea? Why did they reject government funding of religion? Okay, I'm going to go back and I'm going to say not all of them did. Well, of course not. There were many who accepted it. And, you know, there were arguments, heated arguments on the state level as to whether or not there should be any um, any government involvement with financing of religion. But um, those people who opposed government financing of religion, and I'm going to step back a little bit, Alan. I spent 17 years working on the papers of Isaac Bacchus. Um, I edited them. Isaac Bacchus was one of the most famous dissenters in revolutionary New England. Um, he formulated basic ideas that were based coming out of his acquaintance with Roger Williams, who was actually kind of the first person to discuss separation of church and state in connection with, with government. So Isaac Bacchus, is, behind his argument against uh, union of church and state was his own experience in New England. He was a dissenter. Um, I won't go into all the details as to how he became a dissenter. But within New England, especially Massachusetts, where he lived, it was required for everybody to support what they called the established clergymen in town. That would be Congregationalists. Outsiders, insiders, everybody was expected to support the Congregational Minister. Now, there was a little bit of leeway, but most often on the local level, this leeway uh, wasn't put into practice. So Isaac Bacchus and his fellow co-religionists were often forced 
to pay money to support clergymen with whom they profoundly disagreed. So that's one issue. But another issue connected with that is they opposed even thinking about support, forcing people to support their own religion. And they saw this as a violation of, of God's way of doing things. So at the core of it is conviction, religious conviction, that you're forcing me to do something that, that I can't agree with. Beyond that, I think there's other reasons as well. Now, um, I don't know if you've talked with others yet about the uh, disestablishment of religion in Virginia yet, but there was a huge hue and a cry in the, in the mid-1780s uh, when Patrick Henry and others tried to um, set up a funding for all what they called Christian teachers. James Madison opposed this. James Madison and others did some kind of quick political maneuvering. They, they got Patrick Henry, who was the main proponent of the of this bill for um, Christian teachers, funding for Christian teachers. And there was outpouring of opposition to it that finally led to the disestablishment of religion within Virginia by, I think it was 1787. This is about a little bit before actually the, the Constitution was formed. So in this, the original proposal was to have government support for all religious teachers. There were people who supported that, not only Patrick Henry, but also George Washington. But when George Washington noticed how much dissent there was in this, he said, just forget about it. It's not worth it because it creates so much dissension. So not only from the religious perspective were the people who were opposed to government support of religion, but also from the political perspective. People, the Constitution was young. The founders wanted it to succeed. They wanted to bring a united nation, and what they said, it's not worth going ahead and creating dissent by forcing everybody to support religious denominations with which they may not agree. We're going to have to leave it there, Lee, but I think that we're in that same place today where there's considerable dissension over funding of religion. Our guest today is historian Lee Johnson. This has been Freedom's Ring. I'm your host, Alan Reinach. Until next week, let freedom ring.